Welcome to Ogilvy Namagus. Conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologist Chris Thompson and Isolde Carmody at www.storyarchaeology.com. Series 1 Mythical Women. Episode 3 Tales of Ethel. The birth of Lou. The air was rippled with watery sunshine, but through one small round window shone a bright, brave sunbeam, clear and golden, cutting its way into the dim glow of the room. And in its cutting sat Ethelyn. She sat still, facing the window, facing the clear light, the fresh air, and a tear flowed down one cheek. For this chamber, built of glowing stone, furnished with fine woods and intricate embroideries, was the eye of a needle of stone. Oh, it was a wonderful tower. It was a magic tower, but it had no door. And she was its prisoner, suspended in time. Outside, somewhere on the bleak and desolate island, her father, Balor, raged. For there had been a warning, a foretelling. If Ethelyn had a child, a son then he would destroy his grandfather. And so Balor, the malevolent, one-eyed giant of the Fomora, had raised from the bedrock the Tower of Glassy Stone. And there he had placed Ethlyn to grow hidden from the world. But prophecies have a way of coming true. Balor felt safe, felt able to live his life of war and robbery. But in his greed, he began the weaving of the web of his own death. And so the spell that was to sing Lou into being began to wind. There was a cow. It was no ordinary cow, the Glasgowan. She was dappled as white foam on dark water and fertile as the sea. She was coveted by many, but owned by Cian of the Tour de Danon, and Balor was jealous. Through the trick of his shape-shifting, Balor came to the place where the forge of Govnu was heavy with iron and Cian absorbed in the growing of a sword. Balor came in trickery and, grasping the halter of the cow, led her away through the green waves to his hidden isle. But Cian would not be thwarted. In his anger, he called upon Birog, druid of the mountains. Laughing, she carried him over the waters, shrouded him in fronds of shadowed cloud, veiled him in sun haze. And there, on that island, he found Ethlyn. She received him in joy, recognising in him the seed of her freedom. And the shadowed walls of the tower were warmed and transformed, and for a brief while the poison eye of Balor closed in sleep. And in her time, Ethlyn gave birth to the child, Lou. And then Balor woke, feeling the surge of green growth, feeling the sun warming the land into solidity, into wholeness. In his anger, he took up the child and cast it into the unformed, ever-changing sea. But Lou, born of air and fire, now took to his own the element of water. He danced with the salmon on the sea's crest. He turned the wave's curves with the eel. And Birog of the mountains caught him up, scattering silver water drops, carrying him to his destiny, the Ildonach. So 
That's The Birth of Lou. It's a folk story. It's generally known in its folktale form. It's a great story about a fairy tale princess trapped in a tower like Rapunzel, a giant of a father trying to stop her from growing up and her prince rescuing her. Um, a story about her conception and birth, but why is it so significant, do you think? Well, it's a very interesting in terms of being a folk story because it's a story that actually we only have in a folktale form, but it relates to one of the great old Irish literary works, which is the Battle of Moitura, Cath Magathurid, which I'm sure we've mentioned before. We will certainly mention again, watch this space, but it's a little bit too convoluted and long-winded to go into now. Suffice it to say that Lu, or Lugh as it would be pronounced in Old Irish, but most people are familiar with him as Lu, um, was the hero of the Tua de Danann. Um, it was he that came back from having been raised in secret and led the Tua de Danann against uh, the Fovera, the Fomorian uh, invaders, and ultimately led them to victory as their champion. He was known as Ildanach, which literally is just the many-crafted one, um, which I think says a lot about the ideals of the culture of the time, that to actually have the many skills was something to be valued. Um, but this is the story of his birth, which you would imagine in a saga text like the Battle of Maitura, that you would include the conception and the birth of its kind of central hero and champion, but it doesn't appear in the text itself. And in fact, we get it mostly from this folktale version, which you will find up around North Donegal, um, the the tower is said to be on Tory Island. Ah, yeah, Balor of Tory Island, yeah. the island of the tower. Yes, it seems to be particularly strong up in Donegal. Mm -hmm. This story and and the birth stories seem to be um, centered there. But Balor, oh, now he's fascinating. He seems to be almost the origins of the one-eyed giant, and the Fomora who represent all that is unformed chaos stuff, you know, the the unconscious, the, that which bubbles up from the bottom of the sea. Uh, whenever there's something unknown, unformed, there are the one-eyed, one-footed, one-armed, strange giants. And Balor himself is an absolutely archetypal one. He has this great eye, which uh, has to be Paul kept closed all the time because he dares open it. He will poison the whole land, scorch it dry and uh, kill anyone. In fact, he has to have it lifted by people on the battlefield later on. When he wishes to lift his eye and scorch all the warriors, he actually has to have it lifted by um, other people to help him. A team of minions. Team of minions who yes. open his great eye. Um Strange character, but at this point in the story, he is a folktale giant who has decided to imprison his daughter because she might grow up to bear a son who will kill him. Good old Greek um, classical typical stuff. Appears all over the world, in yes. fact, that sort of motive. Yes, and, and that part of the story does appear within the, the story of Maitura. It's the decisive point in the battle is this fulfilment of prophecy where Lou does kill his grandfather. But interestingly, throughout the story of Maitura and uh, throughout other stories where Lou appears, including the story of the, the uh, birth of Cúchulain, uh, he's always known as Lou MacNethlin. He's always known as Lou, the son of Ethlin or Ethlu. Um, which is particularly significant. I mean, even back then, 
people were generally known by their as the son of whoever their father was. But Lou, it's always his mother's name that he carries. Mm, so poor old Kian never really gets a look in, does Not he? Not really, no. It is significant that he's known by his mother name, be, mother's name because uh, there's another version of the story in the Welsh Mabinogion, in the fourth branch of the story, Lou, the Welsh Lou, is a very important character. And uh, his birth there is given very clearly. Um, it's a strange story, though, because uh, Math is about to give um, Arianrod in marriage to another Welsh prince after a long and complicated story about a lot of pigs. <laughs> but uh, just before he gives her in marriage, he wants to check that she is fit to marry and asks her to step over a, a, a stick, obviously a magic stick or... I'm not going into that. <laughs> but uh, in trading, stepping over the stick, she drops a child. The first child is a well-formed child, and he's named Dylan, and he's, uh, the moment he's baptised, he leaps into the sea and becomes Dylan of the wave and goes off into another story. But uh, she also drops something else, something small, which uh, Marv picks up quickly and hides in a scarf. And this it transpires later when he checks the chest he's put the scarf in. It turns out there's a beautiful child there, and this is uh, this baby has no name. So he gives it. He gives, the child is brought up by Gwydion. Gwydion takes. Uh, he knows it's uh, the child of Arinrod, but Arinrod doesn't seem to know this. <laughs> well, they go off to visit Arinrod in her castle, and uh, there he introduces. <sighs> Um, Gwydion introduces the child to the mother and uh, she's kind of horrified and says, why are you shaming me like, like this? And he said, well, actually, I've come to ask you to give your son a name, which he refuses. And she refuses to give the child a name or give him arms or to train him anyway until, and uh, and again, he refuses to give him a wife, which, which in this story is the um, the job of the mother and uh, he, she has to be tricked into giving him his name, Lou, or the Welsh Lou, mm. um, into giving him arms, he's tricked again, and into giving him the wife. I'll put references to this on the blog. Uh, but it is significant. He, he clearly has no father. The father isn't mentioned at all. So this seems to be a, a much more detailed version of the birth of Lou. Yeah. So the trouble is... <laughs> there is still this problem. She does still seem to be a bit of a fairy tale princess in our story of Ethelin. Okay, Arian Rod's a bit more active, but Ethelin, fairy tale princess, doesn't do much, does she? Well, this has been the very thorny issue for uh, feminists through the generations, particularly when looking at folklore and mythology, is all of these very wussy, passive girlies who seem to have everything done unto them. I think we get a very good insight, though, if we look at the meaning of Ethelin's name. Uh, now, for a start, Ethelin is actually, technically, in linguistic terms, it's the genitive, the possessive form. And I think that that is the name she's known by in this sort of slightly later folktale version, because whenever Lou is introduced, who to most people's minds is much bigger, more important, shiny character. Um, and he's called Lou Mock Ethelin. Um, but there the Ethelin is in the genitive, uh, the possessive case. Um, and so what the name would have been in older Irish would be Ethlou. Now, sometimes as well, uh, sounds like the L mm. sound quite often get 
slightly changed. Sometimes they get changed to an R. Sometimes in this case, it's swapped around with an N. So you also do get the form ethnu. But the F part, the important part of her name, at its root, it means uh, the colonel with a mm -hmm. K. Nothing military about it. The <laughs> kernel of a nut or a seed or indeed a nucleus. Oh, I like that idea. She's a nucleus, something that splits and is able to grow into many different forms. I've also come across her as ethna as well. Yeah, that would be another sort of just very slight sound variation uh, would be ethna or ethnu. So forget about Arian Rod. In our stories, it's uh, she's always ethna, this kernel, the nucleus, uh, so it's all about conception, gestation and birth. That's very much, yeah. We, we we really do see, if you see the name Ethlu, you can be pretty certain that the story concerns uh, specifically those that time from conception through the pregnancy and then finally to the birth, and often not much more than that. We meet Ethlu again in The Birth of Angus, Angus Oak. Uh, in that story, Ethlu is married to Elkvar. Uh, but she really fancies the Dagda, and the Dagda fancies her too. That's made it's made very clear it's a mutual thing. The only reason Ethelu won't go to bed with the Dagda is because she's scared of her husband. So the Dagda very cleverly, as he often does, sends Elkvar away on some task or errand, which is going to take them quite a long time, uh, so that Dagda and Ethelu can get down to it. And in order to conceal the fact that they've been together and uh, in this case have actually uh, has gone through the whole pregnancy and had a child at the end of it, they have sent Elkmer away for nine months but made him think that he was just away for a day. And Ethlu then says, it's a young son who can be conceived and uh, born in a single day. And that's how he gets his name, Oingus Machendog, Oingus the Young Son. All this takes place in the Brunaboyne, doesn't it? It does, yes. And uh, that as well, Oingus uh, later claims Brunaboyne as his own place. He uses the same argument, doesn't he? Does, he does, yes. He, he he asks to sit in it for a day and a night. And after he's done that, and it's actually Elkvar who wants it back, and he says, no, you've actually given it to me for the whole of time, because what is time but a whole load of days and nights? <laughs> sophistry and it's wonderful it's, it's this is the stuff i really like it is sophistry but it's also you know saying things about the nature of time and space and, and, all that lovely stuff. <laughs> and how to get your own way by trickery exactly exactly <laughs> but it's you're right that the boy is important because Esu in this story they say very clearly she is also the boy she mm -hmm. is bowen and bowen is uh it's quite a widely used celtic title it's in older celtic it would have been bovinda the white cow uh so we've got another ethlin yes another birth and another cow yep because it's very interesting i mentioned balor being the giant of the femora and these femora were supposed to have come from the seabed mm. from the the place of the unknown but interesting enough if i gather that the glasgowan also means the the cow of sea color yes um Colour words, one of my lovely hobbit horses. Maybe if Chris isn't looking one day, I'll sit and record a secret podcast where I rant on about colour words. But in this, it's I think it is important to look at both the glass scaven and uh, bow in and look at the colours given to them because 
on the surface, it seems as if the Gosgowan is maybe a grey-green cow and that Buwind is a white cow. But when we look at what the colour words mean, Finn is a term for white, bubbling, fast-flowing water, very often from a well or over rapids, a young stream, that white... A young white, river, like... Yeah. That, the Boyne or the Shannon. Yeah, but but at the source where it, where it bubbles up and where it flows fast. Or the well. Yes. Um, and goss is the co- very definitely, it's the colour of the sea, which is why it's so difficult to translate into English because you're saying, well, it's sometimes it's grey and sometimes it's green, sometimes it's blue. So, but what it is, is sea coloured. In modern Irish, it seems to have settled down as green. Green, yeah. And that, that <laughs> definitely confused me in primary school. Well, I'll tell you that much. But yeah, because because Irish colour words yeah. don't fit into those sort of spectrum colours. So both stories, we have a birth. Yes. We have a trick. Yeah. We have uh, a cow, but yeah. one of fresh water yes. and one of seawater. Yes. Uh, I find that interesting. Yeah. So we another cow. So Etlin's a bit of a cow, is she? <laughs> Oddly enough, in the last podcast, we were looking at the importance of cattle, mm. not only for meat and milk, but also as a measure of wealth. And a unit of currency, even. That in uh, certainly in the times when these uh, stories were being told and, and actually committed to in written form, mm. Uh, that was so, wasn't yes. it? The cow was a very important... Yeah, but I think that what we measure. have um, in these stories is almost the layer underneath that. Um, and that's, if you like, the symbolic importance of cows. That, you know, that of course, they're important on that day-to-day level of survival. And because of that, then they become a measure of wealth and, and of currency. But they also have this very important symbolic role, and particularly in Ireland. And in fact, when you were talking about the Mabinogion earlier, and how there was this great story with swine involved and pigs, that was basically the Welsh version of the, the cattle raid of Cooley. Mm-hmm. But where the Welsh love their pigs... We love our cows. Mm. And, of course, uh, the milk of the cow. And isn't uh, Bowind, or Bo, Bowen, um, Bofinda, isn't she connected with the Milky Way? Yes, she is. Uh, the the um, constellation name, if you like, or the, the common name for the Milky Way in Irish is Balak or Shlia Moina, which means the, the way or the path of the white cow. I love that. That is beautiful. There's so little star law Absolutely. in the Irish stories. Uh, I suppose we have to be lucky to be able to see the stars at all. Exactly, yes. And, of course, when you get to see... The whole Milky Way stretching from one horizon to the other. It is wonderful. It is sight. wonderful. Oddly enough, there, there's another connection because mm. Arianrod means silver wheel. Yes. And although her name is often connected by people nowadays, is connected with the, the North Stars or the Pleiades, somehow silver wheel feels much more as if it should be connected to the Milky Way. Yeah, I, I think so, certainly. And there are some quite confusing Irish and Welsh folk stories that talk about a wheel that raises and lowers itself above the earth and of course the milky way although it's pretty consistent it doesn't always join up at the horizon no it feels like a wheel around the earth when you see on a fine night Mm. the milky way like a great band across the sky Mm. i mean when i lived in the city i never realized just how 
incredibly mm. beautiful the Milky Way was. Mm. So many stories. I mean, is it the milk of the goat mm. in the Greek stories? Or or maybe even uh, a load of fish bones, perhaps? <laughs> <laughs> There's an Australian Aboriginal story in which all the women decide to have a party. So they get the men to go out fishing and hunting and they come back with a load of fish. There's so much fish, in fact, they can't eat it all. So the women say, right, that's going to stink. Do something. So the men go off and call all the cats. The cats come and eat the fish. I think that domesticates them just a tiny bit. But <laughs> after the cats have eaten all the fish there's a load of fish bones back left so the women go right we can't have all that mess do something about it so the men turn themselves into birds and dump all the fish bones in the sky and they're still there so, so they, they quite literally do a tidy up a tidy upwards yeah a tidy up that's another story and it's nice to see the men doing the clearing up for once that's why they had to make a story about it so there's a plenty of symbolism uh, 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 uh the, the cow so besides the, the currency Mm. A unit of wealth and currency. Yeah, there is a symbolic layer to this. Mm. And in which case, if Balor, no, interesting now, Balor covets this cow. I find this interesting because um, if this is a sea coloured cow, that the, 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 the connection with the colour of the cow and the nature of the cow is, is from the sea, mm. as Bowen's cow is from the freshwater. Mm. And Balor himself is is a, a seabed giant, mm. uh, the unformed, the sort of strange place of unknowing. On under, but the foot Vira from under the sea. From literally. under the sea, literally. Yeah. Then, in which case, he may have a right to the cow in some way. Mm. Um, so there's a connection here. When he goes to take the cow and brings it back to his isle, and if Ethlin, if you like, also that this is her symbol, mm. um, What's happening here is, is some sort of exchange or is it more like matter and antimatter? If Ethlin and the cow exist in the same place, will the world explode? <laughs> well, again, the, 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 the symbolic realm is, is not quite as, I suppose, simple and straightforward as that. There, there is, there's the deep connection, obviously, between Ethlu and the uh, Glasgowan, between the Ethlu, who's also Bowen, and the Bow Ind. But it's not one of these, it's not like Zeus turning himself into a big white bull and going off. And, <laughs> yeah, it's a nice know. thought, isn't it? Just yeah. imagine you've got this stony isle with this great tower of mm-hmm. glass, and suddenly this see this cow appears and there's a wonderful explosion and in that oh well, you could... <laughs> yeah i'm sure hollywood would have a field day <laughs> i just like the image mind you i i come up there was another ethel whose story mm. i really liked i actually once painted it it's a very strange and whimsical story about uh, three women of the tour de don and um, one of them being ethna and they all go out bathing as they do and one of them ethna loses her cloak of immortality of, faith of, of, father faith sorry faith father faith, faith father, father. Faith, yeah. faith father yeah oh try that again faith father i can't say that word <laughs> that's I why lose, i supplied it i lose my way somewhere <laughs> around all the f sounds and uh, anyway, she loses her cloak, and that means she cannot return to the Tour de Don. And she wanders in this half state, in half in this world, half in that, until she's found by I think it's St Patrick or some other saint, and he takes her back. But but she won't eat, uh, and she's dying from starvation until eventually she accepts the milk of a cow, and this grounds her to this world, which he promptly grabs this opportunity, baptizes her, turns her into a nun, and two weeks later, as usual, she's dead. Yes. You realise that anybody who gets turned into a nun 
Well, anyone who gets baptised, anyone from the Tour de Danon who's ever been baptised dies, dies almost immediately. <laughs> I think there's a warning, a little health warning in there somewhere. <laughs> yeah, be careful of saints. If they baptise yeah. you, you've had it. Well, if you, if you want some sort of very odd, sort of medieval Christian confused imagery, just have a look in that book right there. And this is supposed to be a dictionary, and this is the only entry it has under ethno. I mean, we've just given you three or four stories already con uh, concerning Ethna or Ethlu, and uh, this is the only one within this uh, reference book. Oh, but this is a wonderful story. Um, so here's the story. I'm reading this one. Her story is told in a text from about the 14th century. According to this, she was the daughter of the steward of Angus and was reared along with the daughter of Malanan in the fosterage of Angus at Brunaboyne. When Ethna grew up, she was a beautiful girl, but was insulted by a remark passed by a visitor to the brew, and as a result, she would touch neither food nor drink. After seven days, Angus offered her the milk of a dung cow, one of two marvellous cows which he and Mananan had brought from India. She herself milked the cow and drank its milk, which tasted like honey and wine. When Mananan in his dwelling at Awanavlak heard the news, he, he summoned the maiden to him, for he knew the remedy for every ailment. When Ethna arrived, she would only partake of the milk of the other marvellous cow from India, the speckled animal, which Mananan had himself. Then Mananan understood that when she was insulted in Brunaboyne, her guardian demon had left her and had been replaced by a guardian angel. She was thus no longer one of the two a day, but had become a Christian, and would accept nourishment only from the righteous land of India. For many ages she lived on the milk of the two cows, until St. Patrick came to Ireland. After bathing in the river Boyne one day, her invisibility, her cloak, the invisibility of the two a day, left her, until she met the cleric and went with him to his hermitage near the brew. Patrick soon arrived there later, as did Angus and his people in search of her. The latter demanded her back, but Patrick refused and tried unsuccessfully to convert Angus, who departed with a cry of anguish. Ethna was baptised and died a fortnight later and was buried with Christian honours. <laughs> well, I love the bit about that she would only drink the milk. She knew that yes. she'd become a Christian and would only drink milk from the righteous land, land of, of India. India yeah. That does seem a little confusion. It does seem a bit confused, but there, there are some very important elements in common between the version that, that uh, you had come across and uh, this uh, 14th century sort of medieval Christian hodgepodge. It's a wonderful <laughs> medieval tale, isn't it? It is. And so. actually, though we probably don't have time to yeah. go into it, has this wonderful reference to the losing of the demon and the gazing of okay. any uh, of the angels. Yes. Because at the time, about in medieval times, there was a lot of discussion about what the fairies were, what the mm. Shia were, what, what was a demon, what was an angel, and yeah. whether they were active, passive, neutral, fallen, not fallen. It, it was a time when they were trying to sort of quantify. Yeah. And uh, and that it's reflected in the Irish literature in a kind of confusion of that of that type, because they're trying to take, you know, material which really doesn't have this 
you know, massive dichotomy between the good forces of good and the forces of evil and certain beings being either totally good or totally evil. Mm. And they're trying to kind of fit the stories into that kind of a paradigm and they don't really fit. And that's when you end up with the most sacred, holy Christian land of India. Um, and It's a bit tough on the Hindus. I know, yeah, <laughs> poor things. And of course, the Hindus didn't even have a sacred cow, according to QI, but... That's another story. That is another story. Yeah. Actually, there is a bigger question here. Yeah. I was ju just asking you yesterday, could you actually give me an example of evil in the Irish stories, a story that actually centred around good and evil? We actually couldn't think of one. No. Uh, but that's... Yeah, that that will come up. Get yeah, I think it will. Def it's definitely a big part of our reading of the the Battle of Maitura, which will be a series in itself. I promise you. But let's get back to it. Let's. Even though that is really quite a, I suppose, eclectic version, there are still similarities with the story that you told us before mm -hmm. of Ethna, um, particularly the relationship again with cows, and in that one that you've just read for us, uh, one of the cows was a dun cow. Done is another wonderful colour word, which became a muddy brown colour because that's the colour of an otter, who in Irish is dover coo, which is the freshwater hound. The other bit, the bit that came to mean dun brown, um, actually means the colour of fresh flowing water. <laughs> it's so crazy, we have another it? watery cow. Yeah. Um, and uh, in both those stories, Ethna would only drink the milk of, of a cow. Um, and in fact, in that one as well, she's specifically said to be bathing in the Boyne, mm. which we know is Ethna. Just sort of another watery cow. There are there are various folk stories, mm. uh, particularly in the Welsh, of uh, fairy women being drawn out of water to marry people who have summoned them, at least for a while. And they always bring a dowry in the form of cows yeah. from out of the water. Yeah. Um, there, there, are, there are several versions of that. So mm. it just came to my mind as yeah. we were talking that this appears as a folk motif quite yeah. frequently. Yeah, so um, that's important. And of course, the the other very interesting similarity there is the the losing of the ability to be invisible. You know, this loss of a cloak or a coat or a skin or a skin. Yeah, as in the silky. Or again, going back to the folk motif I was just talking mm. about. Often that character, the the uh, underwater being, is mm. drawn out of the water and is kept out of the water because she loses her skin or a cloak. Yes, yeah, yeah. And um, so what what we have then is this ethno character who goes into the water and by going into the water, loses her way or or is lost to her own people, and that links in with another important ethno. And uh, this is one where it's it, on the surface might not seem to fit this pattern of the ethne we've been talking about involved with conception and birth. Um, and that's the story of Ethnu, who is a sister to Maeve, well-known Queen of Connacht, and, and the other sister is Clothru, who was Queen of Connacht before Maeve was. And that is something we will definitely be coming back to. It's a fantastic story. Um, but Maeve, as well as killing Clothru to gain the sovereignty of Connacht, she pushes Esnu, the other sister, into a river. And she's then gone from them. And this, of course, becomes the River Innie. Mm -hmm. Which isn't that far from here. Yeah. So as well as this conception and birth motif, and as well as this kind of watery cow, 
um, which is not an insult, by the way, motif. We also have this motif of something that's hidden or lost or invisible or unseen. Mm. Um, and that brings us back to Ethnu as the seed or the kernel or even the nucleus. Mm. And oddly enough, that uh, the pushing, the, the one sister pushing the other sister in the river in order to gain sovereignty or gain the prize or gain mm. territory uh, turns up again as a folktale motif. The Absolutely. two sisters, Benari, uh, the, the, they usually, her breastbone is made into a harp mm. and then you know, she is able to tell her story. Yes. Um, I think in the we will go to it now, but the, in the in the, the ethnic story, she does get her own back later on. Well, effectively, between herself and Cawthru, their uh, descendants do actually manage. We won't give it give away the ending, but they do manage to bring an end to Maeve. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to keep that treat for another day because it's a really good one. <laughs> okay, let's go back to Ethelin. Yeah, right. Playing devil's advocate, I think to an observer of these stories or to a reader of these stories or even a listener, she still seems horribly passive. Let's look at the various Ethelins. One, she loses her baby. Two, she refuses to acknowledge her baby. Three, she ends up getting pushed in a river. Or four, best of all, gets to be a dead nun. <laughs> not exactly assertive. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, not if you put it like that, maybe. But the, the Irish stories, they're not linear in form. Um, and if we remember that as well, that Ethnew is a, a nucleus, uh, that's not something that's kind of linear beginning middle end um and that ethnu has a very particular role yeah you're right the irish stories are very as are the welsh mm. um they're very interesting in that uh, they they're not constructed in the normal narrative way that we think about stories uh, they, 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 the storyteller's canon was divided into sort of births, conceptions, journeys, deaths, uh, marriages, uh, all the life, uh, the rites of passage in mm. life. And often the stories seem to reflect not a journey, but, uh, but these particular incidents. Mm. And you'll have often male characters going through these stages, almost like stations on a railway line. Mm. Uh, but the women if you like, are the, the ones who kick them from station to station, yes. to use the analogy. Um, no, they, 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 the stories don't often set women as boring heroes pushed around by fate. They're the ones who do the pushing, and I'm not just talking about birth. Uh, the point at which, they're, they're the point around which the action revolves, uh, the hub, the fulcrum, uh, the nucleus. Yes. I suppose if you want to look at a look at the picture, think of a great wheel and the journey that the hero makes the journey right round the wheel. But at every point on the wheel, he gets completely stuck, hemmed down, bogged down. And it's a, a woman, often with a different name, same woman, different name, will come and kickstart him to the next one. Mm. So it's the Ethlin figure who yes. may kickstart him to the next stage, which is his training. Yes. And of course, with Ethlu, what we have is that centre point, the hub. And of course, we have another clue from Arianrod, uh, who is the, the wheel as well. So I think that that's a very helpful way to understand the role of the women in these stories and that each time they come from the centre and, and sort of enter into the linear story of the male, usually male hero, um, that they can appear to be someone completely different. And so by the time the birth has happened, uh, the next time you see her, she won't necessarily be called Eslu. 
No, and I do find it significant that with the Ethnon stories, she's so frequently given that name. Mm. And maybe that's because that's the beginning one. Exactly. But when you move on to the next stage of the wheel, which is the training of the young hero, whether mm. it's Gohulun or whether it's Lu or whether it's Fionn, they're always taken away from their mothers. They're always hidden. They're always brought up by someone else and given this superhero training, mm. which uh, fits them for the next stage of this magical path. In this case, in the Irish, it's Birog of the mountains mm. who you told me the name means it could well my best guess at the moment is that a bird is it can be a point as in a point of land but it also can mean a thorn so a nice <laughs> so little thorn him, pushing him to give him a little poke <laughs> <laughs> i like that yeah yeah um mind you some of the other characters uh have a little bit more of a, a problem now um Kuhulam, for instance mm. Again, he is taken off, he's trained. People often know the stories of his childhood. He has to go off to women to be trained. And uh, he goes off to, uh, it's often it's known as the Isle of Skye. Yes. The land of shadows, the mist land of shadows. And he goes off and meets two wonderful warrior women who are called... Skahuk and Uahuk. And uh, there's also Aifa, Aoife. Who... She often gets forgotten. Yes, she is the, the third one yeah. because she's um, teaching him about sexuality. Mm-hmm. And when he comes back, he's fully trained. Mm. Uh, that's another story mm. that's a great story and then the interesting one is probably Arian Rod herself mm. who uh, as I mentioned earlier she has refused to acknowledge her son mm. so she has to be tricked into giving him a name mm. and this is done Gwydion disguises himself and the child as, as shoemakers mm. and uh, out of sedge and grass makes leather and she and and goes to her castle where they're making these wonderful shoes. And he tricks her into coming down and uh, watching as he makes the shoes. And the child is busy shooting a wren. Mm. Probably significant. She goes, oh, the young lion has a steady hand. Ah, he says you've named her. You've named the child. Mm. Well, the second time he goes to, again, disguises himself and the child and goes to her castle, he sets up a scenario where she thinks she's being attacked by a great army. And she says, everybody has to help defend the castle and gives the child arms. Mm. The the, the invading army immediately disappears. Mm. And, of course, later on, the more well-known story, Gwydion makes for Lou uh, um, a a woman made of flowers as a bride. Mm. But that's another story and a beautiful and very mm. strange story. But the point here is that uh, it is Arian Rod herself yes. who stands in the role of trainer, mm. even that's though reluctantly. Exactly. And and in a way, through this story, uh, through her refusal and having to be tricked into doing these things, it makes it really clear that that is normally the job of the mother, mm-hmm. is to give the name, give the training, and then eventually give the bride as well. This appears so frequently in the stories. Mm. This the importance of the mother giving the name to the child, arming the child, mm. and also um, acknowledging the wife. And mm. yet there seems to be no... I certainly have legal background to that. No, I mean in, in the law texts and the status texts um that, that I have studied, now I haven't obviously read every single bit of every single one. I'm not Mr. Binchy. Um but no, I haven't come across this as a as a woman's role from those texts. Now, you know, I I'd, I'd love to find some indication in any of them, if someone does know of a source, uh, that might uh shed some light on this. Um so yeah, it seems to be most definitely a story role. I don't know how it 
interacts mm. with the society of the time. I don't know. Well, how obviously, it, it was acceptable. Yeah, as, they, they, as it enters into the written form of the story, yeah, not just ex- acceptable, but obviously uh, expected. expected. Yeah. So, if it was archaic, mm. it was accepted and mm. understood. Mm. Mm. Um, I don't know. That's something that needs more researching. Yes. Maybe it connects up with Fosterage in some way. I would say most definitely. You know that that definitely reflects the pattern of Fosterage. Mm. Um, but I, I think it's it's maybe worth saying at this point. Um, now that we're sort of wondering how this position relates to texts that that reflect, if you like, people's everyday lives, the way that society actually functioned, and 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 so on. That um, we haven't really shown how this story and the stories we've looked at are part of story archaeology well it's true um we've used when we've begun with a, a an oral form of, of the story mm. uh there is no literary written down ancient form of the mm. birth of Lou. though i have uh it does appear in the mabinogion which is of course a recognized text yes and and which certainly does the Mabinogion uh, particularly does have a, a, a historical relationship. Text, yeah. yeah, but it also has a, a definite relationship to the story of Maitura. That there is most definitely, uh, you know, a historical connection between those two texts. But um, but the actual story that we started with doesn't appear in any written form until centuries later. Um, and the Balor on Story Island mm. is a very late form of the. Mm. Well, well, it's written down late. Yeah. We don't know. It is an oral form. Yes, and it does, of course. It, it does relate to, and you know, the ninth century versions of of the, the Battle of Maitura. But you know, we've gone right up through to um, that fourteenth century sort of uh, half Christianized, <laughs> confused India mm. is obviously the seat of Christianity version of mm. the ethno story. So what we actually have is ethno. If if we take the archaeology. Uh, terminology yeah um she is an artifact which is i feel almost uh insulting to say that i hope she doesn't start fasting against me but an artifact that appears in layer after layer of the stories and uh has the same form pretty much each time she still is playing the same role uh even though she's appearing in places centuries apart from each other you can actually find her it, it, it's a story where her name appears in several strata. Yeah. It's fascinating to see how it goes on. And uh, maybe we'll come back to some of these uh, some of these themes later on. I know we certainly will come back to the story of Maeve. Yes. Yeah. And the story of Moitura. Yes. And we'll hear of Lou again. And we'll hear of Maeve again. And Clothru and mm. many more of our, uh, um, our people. Yes. Um, so thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Ogilvy Nanagas, Conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologists Chris Thompson and Isolde Carmody. For more information or to subscribe, please visit www.storyarchaeology.com. You can get in touch via email on the storyarchaeologists at gmail.com. <laughs>